3: Well, my friends, it's Anthony Samarco. If you followed me on the social media, you would know that. And I hope that, you know, I hope you don't miss stuff because you're not aware of it, because you're not on social media. Happily, though, uh, you can get the podcast afterwards, in most cases. Anthony Samarco is in, and we're going to talk about Christmas traditions in New England, and the Boston area. This is a book that Anthony has. It's been out a couple of years. We want to hear about Anthony's personal Christmas traditions, and we want to hear about yours, folks. Every family has stuff they do. We want to hear about it. So, Anthony, welcome back. Well, thank you very much. And happy birthday. Oh, yes. It's been my birthday now for nine minutes. And so I'm not going to talk about it tonight because we already talked it to death prior. But (laughs) here it is now. The The only bummer is I didn't really make any plans. So I don't know what I'm going to do. But I have... I do now have a bottle of Limoncello, which should help ease the pain.
1: It will. Add an ice cube. It'll be delicious. It's
3: pretty momentous. You know, it's the big 5-0. Oh, oh, really? Yeah. Very and nice. So, you don't look so a day over 40. It's a big, big day. and you know, So, we're, you know, here we go. In the, it's, my birthday always falls in the Christmas season. Very nice. I yes. feel kind of Christmassy, especially seeing the cover of your book, Christmas Traditions in Boston, which has youngsters and this big... uh, Fire kind of fire engine kind of thing from I don't know 1892 or something.
1: Well, it's a Hunnaman fire engine that was made in Roxbury, Massachusetts. You know, since the early 19th century, Hunnaman and Company had produced pumpers, but that's actually a chemical steamer, and it was probably made in 1882. And during the period of 1942, the height of World War II. Uh, the Boston Fire Department would bring it out of its archive, so to speak, and Santa Claus sat on the seat with a child holding, you know, the child with his fireman's cap. And in the foreground, it's a little Girl Scouts troop that says Happy Holidays on their banner. But I think it was one of the things that people realized that Boston Common was always decorated with the trees, with uh, lights strung from its branches. It was a life size nativity crush, and there were these wonderful tableaus. Uh, made by a company in Woban, Massachusetts, out of Pexaglass. So the Common was a place that brought people of all walks of life and all ages, not only to see the lights, but also to walk from one end of town to the other.
3: Did they have livestock in a nativity scene at one point?
1: Well, it wasn't so much livestock in a nativity scene, but they actually kept a reindeer pen on Boston Common. There was one in the 19th century, and it was on the Boylston Street side in front of what is today the Colonial Theater. At that time, it was the Boston Public Library. But in the 1950s and 60s, and I do remember even as late as maybe 1972, there was a reindeer pen. It sounds awful, but it was a chain-link enclosure on the common, on the Tremont Street side opposite West Street. And there the reindeer were kept. It was something that was quite unusual for many urban children to actually see. Well, I've never seen one. Either. have you not really have you I have well I remember them on the common oh but of wow course, you know I remember them you know in the countryside when we were children but it was surprising because they were there and it was something that was really quite fun but many of them were fed all sorts of things from candy canes and popcorn and things of that sort they finally because the youth of Boston were somewhat you know m- treating them ill they brought them away and they've never been back. So uh,
3: you have some photos of your Christmas tradition. I see your your Christmas tree. You really decorate it heavily. Do you use uh, tinsel, the the tinsel stuff? No. You you don't? No.
1: It's just a real tree, but the thing is uh, we also collect ornaments. So wherever we go in the world, we bring something back to actually put on the tree. It's a nice way when one is having a libation to decorate the tree and realize, oh, this is from... You know, whatever country or, you know, whatever trip. Memories. And, yes, exactly. But those are the shared traditions. Tell me about some of your uh, Christmas bulbs. Well, the bulbs really go the gamut. We have these wonderful um, three-dimensional figures, it's pr- primarily from England, Wales, Scotland, and Ireland. And they go you know, the gamut, not only um, Queen Mary and, you know, William and Mary. Uh, we have Henry the Eighth. We have the six wives of Henry the Eighth. But then, of course, we also brought things back from Murano, which is the island off of Venice, which were hand-blown little glass pendules of grapes. And there are things from, you know, Greece and Italy and South America. When you
3: Do you take time to re- reminisce as you put them on? We do.
1: And, you know, we, we not only have a tree in Boston, but we also have a tree in Austerville. So each one of them are decorated. Each one
3: requires a small party, <laughs> right? <laughs>
1: well, it's every afternoon. But the thing is, it's it's kind of fun. And no, we don't put tinsel, but it's the only reason I don't is because I had a cat one time. Her name was Charlotte. And she was eating the tinsel, and I, I basically had to pull it almost every afternoon from her oh, yes. rear orifice. Um, and there was usually a squeal or something of that sort. So no longer is there tinsel used. <laughs>
3: so do you have a, a you know, traditional libation when you do the tree or is it just standard
1: that's no, a standard martini with three olives straight up three big <laughs> three queen, three queen, queen olives. olives yes. but it is fun I mean it's just you know when we think of Christmas it's something that is not only something we've looked forward to all year but it's also the sense in some ways of knowing that we're going to break bread with family and friends and we're going to have special foods that were only served at the time of the Christmas season, and also baked items. And I found a bakery in Yarmouth recently, and it's Carpaccio's. I don't know if anybody has ever heard of it. It's a wonderful bakery on Route 28. And they make the Italian pastry that is so prevalent in my culture. And What is it? Well, things such as a rum log, which it might sound peculiar, but a rum cake, it's not only cake, but it's filled with uh, fruit as well as covered in whipped cream and almonds. Oh. And the baker, um, Matthew Scappaccio, is someone who apprenticed to my cousin, uh, Joseph Magliaro, who had La Casha's Bakery in Somerville. So when I found it, it was a fluke. And I said to myself, this was the most peculiar thing in the world, that it looked and smelt just like I remembered so we've been actually enjoying this. So I'm ordering a rum log for Yay. Christmas. Yes.
3: What are, what are some uh, other My family um, baked goods from your area?
1: Well, baked goods, especially from the Avellino and Naples areas themselves, actually went the gamut of not only anise cookies, but we had these wonderful sesame cookies. They were butter cookies as well, but the whole aspect was... The biscotti is something that I always loved, and my grandmother made them, and Joe makes them, but they're either soft and or hard, and they're filled with everything imaginable. You know, nuts is a typical thing, but we also put cranberries into them and chocolate chips. They're an unusual aspect, but especially with a cup of coffee after dinner, um, sometimes the dinner is quite heavy, so we basically just have a cookie or two, but In that instance, it's really quite fun. But one of the biggest things that my family had done on the Italian side of my family was the Feast of the Seven Fish. And, of course, Christmas Eve is something that is always done as a meatless fast. And you can, of course, eat meat after midnight, but in that instance, my grandmother's family would actually serve things such as, you know, macaroni with uh, garlic and oil sauce. Mm. There'd be fried shrimp, there'd be smelts, mm. there'd be calamari, lobster. You know, and it was the bacala that would actually be served with, you know, celery, sometimes with prunes or things of that sort. But these were things that one looked forward to. And it was usually only at that time that you began to prepare these specific meals. And... Though I do them on occasion, and I can't do them to the extent because it's just too much food, um, they see, still evoke that feeling of the shared Christmas traditions of the past.
3: Anthony knows about all the tra- traditions in Boston.
1: Well, not all of them.
3: Well, but... you probably do know about them all. You just don't talk about them all.
1: Well, I think it's a fun thing to actually listen to other people and you know try to disseminate their memories, my memories, your memories— try to make them in some ways as to something that's not only readable but also makes something that is a compilation of Bostonians so that's well, kind of fun
3: one oh. of our Christmas traditions in New Hampshire had to do with the common I've, I've mentioned this before but our Massachusetts aunt and uncle would give us tickets to some event in Boston which would make us come to Boston which was a good thing oh yes and each whatever we did whether it was the circus or the movie Mad 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 World it's a mad 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 world at the very whatever nice. we had the Cyclorama Theater? Yeah, might have been the yes. one on, uh, over on the far side of Beacon Hill, on whatever near the Mass General Hospital. It's gone now. Anyway, we would always make sure we saw the common and the lights, and it was always ooh. I, I for a while the lights weren't that great, but they're they're pretty good
1: again. They are. They're wonderful. I was in town for a meeting the other evening, and I was running across the common and. I was really quite surprised how lovely they really are. I think Mayor Walsh and, you know, the staff actually have a lot of, you know, credit for this wonderful aspect because I think sometimes at one time before the advent of suburban shopping malls, everybody went to town in the 1940s, 50s, and early 60s. Then you began to realize in some ways there were reindeers, as I said, in the pen. There was also the nativity scene. There were carolers on the common. They had this little chapel near what is today the Park Street side of the Park Street Church. That little chapel would actually be filled with children, you know, singing from 3 p.m. until 8 p.m. every evening.
3: So now we have a call from Tank in New Hampshire. Now Tank's guy used to live in Brookline or Chestnut Hill or something in kind of a an everything desert. There was really nothing there. Uh, not certainly not much Christmassy going on, but he's moved to New Hampshire to the charming town of Dover, New Hampshire with a nice downtown area. He lives right near downtown and I'm sure that there are Christmas lights up. but I'm sure his Christmas, there's much Christmas here than usual. And right tank, am I right? You're up in New Hampshire, Dover, New Hampshire.
4: Where all the lights are bright and it's snowing and we've already got about, uh, I would say, six to eight inches of snow.
3: Wow. See, that's diff- it's different up in New Hampshire when it comes to snow, right? There's a lot more.
4: Oh, yeah, but Bradley, they know how to get rid of Bradley. They have
3: little plows. To the sidewalk. Well, they have those in Brookline, too, and
4: I, I,
1: they're called shovels. Well, I wasn't <laughs> out much when I was in Brookline, you know.
3: <laughs> and and here, I, I can I can
4: look at the the streets and the parking lot and people holding their little kids by the hand and you know all bundled up and drinking something with steam, which I'm imagining is you know cocoa. For the kids with little marshmallows, and and for the adults, you, you never know. Oh, but Mr. a uh, Merry Christmas, sir. Merry
1: Christmas to you.
4: Y- you have brought me back to many places in, in the past twenty minutes. Reindeer on the common. Oh God, you remember that? That was it. Was wonderful. They were so cool. You'd look at them, and and you'd. Uh, and I guess I wasn't one of the bad people, but I would feed them, you know, and they would eat it right out of your hand. And it exactly. was, and, uh, and, and the trees—not necessarily on the common, which were beautiful—but the ones. Remember how Jordan Marsh used to have? It was like a little jet out uh, in between, like the first and second floor, and they would have decorated trees out there.
1: But they also had the life-size nativity crash. That parapet, yes. was, that parapet was built in 1949 at Jordan Marsh. It was designed by Perry, Char, and Hepburn. And the life-size nativity crash not only had Jesus as well as Mary and Joseph, but they also had the three kings, the shepherds and sheep. And those trees would actually be on the edges, and they were really quite incredible. But today, Macy's wow. actually has a wonderful tree on that parapet. It's only one, but it's beautifully decorated. And that's oh,
0: part of what oh. Christmas
1: is all about.
4: Okay. Oh, another thing, you had mentioned the, uh, the seven fishes. Oh, the cod, the bakala, that was like salt heaven. Well, oh, I,
1: I think my, my grandmother would soak it for what was believed to three to four days before it would actually be pliable to be actually be made. But a lot of people serve it in many different ways. as a salad sometimes with olives and celery, other people yeah. actually serve it a little warm with uh, prunes or even dates. And it all Ooh. depends on whatever the region of Italy one comes from. But my grandmother's parents had come from Avellino and then Ginelli. But the San Marcos were from Naples. And there was a little bit of a difference, subtle difference. But it was always the fact that we could never have meat on Christmas Eve. So that's no. how I think the Feast of the Seven Fish has actually evolved in Boston.
3: Hey, Tank, thanks uh, for yeah. checking in, brother. Okay, take care. Okay, right. Okay, so initially, Christmas was banned.
1: It was. You know, surprisingly, Massachusetts Bay Colony, when it was settled by the English in 1630, uh, were people that were members of the Church of England, but they wanted to purify it from within. That's why they were called Puritans. In that instance, they were people that literally interpreted the Bible, and it became a Bible commonwealth. Many people don't realize, though, in the 1630s and 1640s that there was no biblical tradition to actually celebrating Christmas because many people perceived Jesus Christ was born in September. And it was also the fact that it was an ancient Roman holiday. So it was a pagan holiday, and in many ways the Puritans felt it was something that was unseemly.
3: Well, indeed they did, and they put up a notice says that said you know what you can't be celebrating or anything and this is how it's how it read and this is from anthony samarco's book it says for preventing disorders arising in several places within this jurisdiction by reason of some still observing such festivals as were superstitiously kept in other countries to the great dishonor of god and the offense of others it is therefore ordered by this court and by the authority thereof that whosoever shall be found observing any such day as Christmas or the like, either by forbearing of labor, feasting, or any other way, upon such accounts as aforesaid, every such person so offending shall pay for every such offense five shillings as a fine to the country.
1: And it went one step further, and in 1659, the Great and General Court of Massachusetts actually banned... Christmas in Boston. So many times you began to see that the Puritans, who were primarily the people that were living in and around Boston and Massachusetts Bay Colony, would continue right through to the late 1670s as banning Christmas. But with the ascension of not only King William and Queen Mary, they actually had a glorious revolution. And in 1681, that was rescinded, and they basically saw not just Puritans in Boston, but now Anglicans. And King's Chapel was built. And the concept there was that you had two forms of religion, one that banned it and the other that celebrated it. So in the 18th century, there was a somewhat of a dichotomy in, the, in Boston. And we realized it really wouldn't be until the early 19th century that Boston really began to embrace Christmas. God, it makes
3: you wonder what living during the Puritanical times was like. Was, was it? Did, I wonder if they felt oppressed?
1: Or, or do they feel like we feel today? It's
3: kind of the same, only just different
1: circumstances. Well, don't forget, a lot of these people had felt that they were harried out of England. They were basically not accepted for their religious beliefs. And James the I and Charles I were two people that in some ways saw them as dissenters and traitors, so to speak. And by coming to the new world, they created a, a new Zion. And this new Zion, of course, did not include Christmas along with anything else. Really, it was somewhat of a puritanical hierarchy.
3: According to Anthony's book, they referred to uh, these Christmas practices as satanical practices, not just fools' tide, but actually sa- satanical practices. Well, there are many Christmas traditions in Boston, specifically. Actually, and there's, after the break, we'll talk about one of them, and uh, Christmas cards. There's a sp- There's a very special relationship between Christmas cards and Boston. And Anthony will will explain that to us after this. 617-254-1030. Thank you so much, Tank, for calling. I I love that you love where you live now. (coughs) And you can tell it. You can hear it in your voice. A A lot of energy there. It's WBZ.
2: That's
3: ChumbaCasino.com.
2: No purchase necessary. VTW group void. prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
3: Well, Anthony Samarco, author of Christmas Traditions in Boston and 80 other books. Let's go to Kyle in West Virginia. Hi, Kyle.
0: Hello. What's going on? Oh, nothing much. Just listening to you guys on my way home from work.
3: Are you from here or down there?
0: I'm from down there.
3: Do you have different... (laughs) Christmas traditions down there, like, I don't know, like roasted
0: squirrel or anything (laughs) like
3: that? Oh, you're terrible.
0: (laughs) I I wouldn't put it past people. I swear, I wouldn't put it past people. (laughs) Um, For our family, well, my dad is half Norwegian, so his family, what they always did, and my family too, is that we would believe that there were trolls or fairies that we had to leave out cookies and food for in order to help us have a good year, a lucky year in order for us to, you know, just have a nice time, a nice year, so no stress, nothing bad happening to us, you know, things like that.
1: That's interesting, is that something that all of the Norwegian countries do, or?
0: I don't know, I know other countries, like I think Ireland or Scotland have something similar, something I think involving brownies, a type of ferry, but I'm, I see, I'm the only, we're the only Norwegian family in our area that we know. So we've always done it. You know, my nieces and my brother and his family always does it. Um, But as far as I know, I think there's other cultures that have a similar practice.
1: It's interesting because it's also the fact, do you celebrate Santa Lucia?
0: No, we do not.
1: Okay, because there is actually the aspect of young girls actually wearing wreaths on their hair. And within the wreaths, they actually have four lighted tapers and they sing Santa Lucia. and. I think in some ways, you know, each of these cultures that have brought their own traditions from, you know, Mm -hmm. Europe and Asia and South America and Africa, each one of Mm -hmm. our cultures, you know, create these thriving nexuses of how we interpret what Christmas is all about. But it's not just the fact of Jesus Christ, but it's also, as you say, a good harvest for the next year or good wishes or good luck. But that's actually something in a lot of ways that we all hope. And, you know, with the rebirth in some ways of Jesus, it's something that many of us hope for. Exactly. Well, thank you, Kyle. Anything else?
3: Is this the first time you've
1: called?
0: I don't know. I've called once, but that was, I think, a long time ago.
3: You sound very great. I mean, you have a great connection. uh, Technically, (laughs) technically, your line is very strong. Very
0: nice. Yeah. I don't live out in the... um, in populated areas, so I'm just stopped on my way home from work in one of the towns.
3: <laughs> what do you do for a job?
0: I work at a hospital. Oh. I, I'm basically the person you see when you first come in and help you find out where to go, register you for things like that. Very
3: nice. I love working on a hospital. Well, Kyle, thank you very much.
0: No problem. Thank you, guys, and a Merry Christmas. Merry, Merry Christmas, Christmas
3: to you, too. Feel free to call it next week and then every week thereafter. One thing I do know about trolls and fairies. Uh, that is that in I know in Iceland they, it's an extremely big part of the culture to the point where mm-hmm. there was a highway planned. They made a whole highway plan, and then they had to change the drawings and the plans because it was brought up that this was going through an area where trolls and fairies were, were thought to live, and they had to make the actual highway go around. Interesting. That's like that's hardcore.
1: It certainly is. All right, we
3: promised to talk about Christmas cards and a gentleman who made them famous around here.
1: Well, you know, Christmas cards are things that, I don't know. I, when I was a child, we received hundreds. But today, if I receive a dozen, I'm really quite surprised. Even email, thank you, you know, as well as Christmas cards are quite fun. But in the 19th century, Christmas cards were known in England as early as 1842. But the man who introduced them to the United States was Louis Prang. And Louis Prang was a German immigrant. He had come here in 1848. It's the height of the social revolution of Germany. He had been a printer. And what he did in the 1850s and the early 1860s was he learned the new form of printing called lithography, which is to carve a stone so that each stone would actually be dipped into a color to create an overlay that would then be a lithograph. He became a superlative lithographer. And in that instance, by the early 1870s, he began to do not only scenes such as, you know, home sweet home and the country scenes. But in 1875, he introduced the first Christmas card to the United States. Now, today we memorialize him with Avenue Louis Prang, where Latin School is located. But the whole idea was on Roxbury Meeting House Hill, not only where he lived, which was Center Street, He also had adjacent to it a factory that he employed upwards of 100 people. These 60 men that worked there um, would primarily do not only stock, they did a wonderful paper stock, but they also had 40 women that actually did the hand coloring and also the mottos that were in the piece. But in the 19th century, he was said to produce the finest cards with the most perfect coloring of any that were available in the market. And by the 20th century, you know, it went the gamut from Hallmark Cards to Bonton Art Company as well as Rustcraft and many other would produce wonderful Christmas cards. But none of them, no matter how much they tried, could ever emulate the quality of the Louis Prang cards.
3: Can you talk a little bit about Cleopatra's barge?
1: <laughs> well, you know, in the 19th century, everybody loved to go slang. And sleighing was something that, with snow, was an enjoyable afternoon or evening. But in the period of the 19th century, there was a barge that seated 40 people, and it was known as Cleopatra's Barge. This was a wonderful sleigh pulled by eight matched white horses, and it would actually be rented by Thomas Niles. Niles kept a stable on School Street just to the right of what we call Old City Hall, and in that instance you could rent it for four hours it would take you through the streets of Boston but usually it then went out to the countryside and in the 1840s and 1850s it would usually stop at a tavern and there'd be libations there'd be actually a chicken dinner and people would enjoy themselves and then there'd be a ride back into town during that period it was something that everybody seemed not just to have a great time but you realized in some ways that it was a really economically advantaged um, activity because 40 people were sharing in the cost. Well, that actually continued from the 1840s right up until the early 1870s, but we knew sleighs in Boston even in the period of the teens and 20s, but Niles himself seemed to corner the market on charm because those white horses were incredible. He kept a stable of over 140 horses. But this was something that was really quite special.
3: Back to Louis Prang. Uh, He was active during the Civil War, right? And and there is a card that says uh, Christmas in Camp. Correct. You own that probably, right? I do. Because it's
1: in your book. Well, I collect everything I can find on Boston, no matter what. And I think one of the things is not only Louis Prang, but Thomas Nast were two different types of printers. Now, Louis Prang would do things in a print then became more of a lithographer. In the book, I talk about a man named Thomas Nast, who was a political cartoonist. And in that way, many times, he was somebody who would actually do line etchings that would then be used in illustrated newspapers during the Civil War. So not only was he showing Union soldiers, but even Confederate soldiers. And it was he who would introduce Kris Kringle that evolved into Santa Claus in the 1880s.
3: Yeah, there are some nast images in your book, as well as that card I mentioned, Christmas in Camp.
1: Yes, and I mean, it's a fun thing. You begin to realize, you know, the Civil War was a horrendous time. but, And I always tell my students at Boston University, uh, the Civil War was not fought to free the slaves. The Civil War was actually fought to preserve the Union of the United States. And in that way, sometimes, you know, these men, Union and Confederate would go to camp, and of course, they were people in some ways that had lived and loved just like us, but they were giving their sense of duty during their term as a soldier. And camp must have been a very lonely place, and they would actually have not just Thanksgiving dinner, but Christmas dinner. Families would send small parcels, especially at the holidays, and Christmas at camp, which is a, I believe that's a Winslow Homer illustration, was something that in some ways did show how they lived.
3: The book we're, g- we're working with is Christmas Traditions in Boston by Anthony, a couple years old, but you know, you can, it's available and it's got a lot of great images in this one, some of the best. So we have uh, at Halloween,
1: Louisburg Square, they go all out. Do they also go all out at Christmas? They do. And the surprising thing is, you know, Beacon Hill itself, one doesn't realize in some ways. It's only from the early 19th century. It's not really something that was developed in the 17th and 18th century. But Charles Bullfinch had introduced a a new aspect of topographical changes with the cutting down of the hill, and he created two parks, Lewisburg Square and Pepperdon Square. And today, Lewisburg Square itself is something that's not just in the 19th, but even now in the 21st century, it's one of the premier neighborhoods of the city. But in 1907... Mrs. Ralph Adams Cram introduced in some ways the aspect of putting lighted candles in every window on Christmas Eve. She had asked her neighbors to do it between 7 and 10 p.m. and it was something that brought people to take a stroll around Lewisburg Square. But in the late 20s and 1930s a woman by the name of Margaret Nichols uh, Shercliffe actually began to do impromptu handbell ringing concerts in the doorways of Lewisburg Square. And she would actually not only teach her children to do traditional English handbell ringing, but many of her friends. She was a noted bell ringer. She attended Old North Church, where her father and she both rang the bells. But she was really quite a well-known musician of her day. And in that instance, she became extremely well-known and would provide these lovely concerts. By the name of the 1940s, 10,000 people were showing up At Lewisburg Square between 7 p.m. and 10 p.m. not just to see the illuminations but they were open houses and people would go in have a glass of punch and maybe something to eat and then of course the music began as early as 8 o'clock in that way many times Lewisburg Square was a destination on Christmas Eve and then with midnight mass possibly at the Church of the Advent you began to realize how wonderful that tradition would actually become and today, of course, it's no longer done, but it's something in a lot of ways is a fond memory from the past.
3: In your book, Christmas Traditions, there's a an image of Lewisburg Square featuring old Mr. Boston booze. Yes. I guess that they used the square as a backdrop for a, a beautiful image of you know Christmas. And they were a company that made... Was on Mass- Massachusetts
1: Avenue? That's right. Old Mr. Boston was located at 1010 Massachusetts Avenue in Roxbury. Today it's actually a city of Boston building. But during the period of the 1940s, they did an advertisement that appeared in nationwide magazines like Look and Life. And the backdrop were the illuminated windows with wreaths on Lewisburg Square. And in the foreground, they had the different types of alcohol that they produced. You had to realize that these open houses on Lewisburg Square might include a punch, but they might also have such as old oh, Mr. Boston's Rock and Rye. You know, it was actually to just soothe the throat, but by 10 o'clock, most of the people that were on Lewisburg Square were no longer singing "Oh, Little Town of Bethlehem or Jingle Bells, but they were singing Roll Out the Barrel. <laughs> Are
3: there um, churches that have traditions that you can specify? Um
1: Well, there are. The Cathedral of the Holy Cross in Boston's South End is magnificent. A Midnight Mass is something that attracts thousands of people. Not only is the altar bedecked with poinsettias, but you begin to see in some ways the solemnity of what is really Christmas in Boston. Also, the Church of the Advent on Beacon Hill would actually have a, a Midnight Mass, and we see not just music, but the panoply of not only religion, but also the aspect of the great cheer that many people have usually had a dinner earlier, and then they go with a family and friends to actually have you know the enjoyment in some ways of Jesus's birth on you know Christmas Day.
3: Some inter- there are interesting folks in your book. I see Elihu here, Elihu Vedder. Yes. Tell me about him.
1: Well, you know, he was actually associated with Louis Prang. And Louis Prang in the 1880s had become so successful in his Christmas card business that he actually encouraged professional and amateur artists to submit a Christmas card design. He would offer $2,000 as an award and in 1882, $2,000 was almost an annual salary of a middle-class family. In that way, Elihu Vetter, who was a well-known landscape architect and slash painter, he would actually do work that he actually painted. He was incredible. And his paintings at that time commanded three, four, five thousand dollars $5,000. He won in 1882 a wonderful design that he submitted to Louis Prang, and he called it Aladdin's Lamp. And it's a young woman descending a staircase holding Aladdin's Lamp aloft surrounded by peacock feathers, and it was something that was not just grand. It really had nothing to do, so to speak, with any Christmas tradition. It was something more of wishing for a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. But he won that award, and every year Louis Prang would give an award of $2,000, which was just incredible. But that was how important Louis Prang's lithography business had been. Not only was he a success, but he produced the finest cards available.
3: Speaking of cards, the cards, there's Tasha Tudor.
1: I know, Tasha Tudor, she's a fantastic woman. She's deceased now, but Tasha Tudor was born on Beacon Hill, and her grandfather was the man who was called the Ice King of Boston. Frederick Tudor was a man who would actually harvest ice, and what he would actually do in the 1840s was learn how to preserve it so that he could then take it by ship to warm climates. And he would bring it, not just to Cuba, South America, Africa, and even India, but he made a fortune doing it. Now, you would think of ice basically melting when it got into a warm climate, but these were enormous pieces, usually wrapped in sawdust and then blankets, so that at least half the cargo of ice would arrive. Well, when she was born, her name wasn't Tasha Tudor, it was actually Starling Burgess. Her father was a yacht designer, and her mother, Rosamond Tudor, was actually a well known portrait painter. After her parents' divorce, she took the name Tasha and Tudor, her mother's maiden name. And during the period of the 1920s as a post debutante, what she did was to actually begin to live the life of a woman of the 1830s. Not only did she dress in clothing of that period, but she lived in a house in Vermont that was not heated. She cooked over an open fire. She wrote a series of books, many of them dealing with her corgi dogs. And she also became a well-known painter. And many of her Christmas cards would actually depict the Christmas season of yore. And it was something that not only showed people baking over a, a wonderful cast iron stove... There'd be cats and corgi dogs and children. There might be something preparing for the holiday or even little angels. And in the book, I actually had acquired, oh, three or four of her various Christmas cards. But she was somebody in some ways that was like Norman Rockwell, like Louis Prang, and even Joyce Hall of Hallmark Cards that was creating something that provided these wonderful memories and the things of the Christmas in the Kitchen of the 1890s.
3: You have some Norman Rockwell images in the book.
1: They're wonderful. I mean, Norman Rockwell was something that was... He's like Mr. Christmas. He was, but he was also the chronicler of middle-class life of 20th century America. And many people go to the Norman Rockwell Museum and then they begin to realize the breadth of his art. He really was somebody who made art not only accessible to the masses, especially through the nationwide magazines, Look and Life, and he was also somebody who could seem to chronicle not only us and our families, but the American of the 1950s.
3: So we have a minute. Can you indulge me and everyone to talk about an Anthony Samarco New Year? Like, wh- what what do you do on the New Year?
1: Well, New Year, when I was a child, was something that was usually spent on um, having roast pork always on New Year's dinner. Today... Christmas Eve is something in a lot of ways. We have a lovely dinner, and we Mm -hmm. usually spend it in Austerville. But it's something that realizes the next day we always go to the same place, which is Phonesy's, which is in Provincetown. Mm -hmm. And we always go to the brunch on New Year's morning. And it's something in a lot of ways that not only has delicious food, but it's become a tradition. And they have many people that will actually... um, like the L Street Brownies, run into the water at Provincetown. It's kind of fun to watch, but we bring our dog along, and then we take a small walk down Commercial Street and go back to the house in Austerville. I'll prepare something. You know, I don't know what. I don't do roast pork any longer, but I'll have a fireplace. There'll be a drink, and it'll be a hopefully cheer for the new year.
3: Okay. You know, Anthony, you
1: have a great life, and...
3: I want to thank you for and you deserve it. You're productive, and you have a very rich life, and you're very good at sharing it with all of us and making us feel a little bit richer for it. Speaking of rich, this uh, this is a real rich book, Christmas Traditions in Boston, Anthony M. Samarco. You should pick it up, as, if not as a gift, for yourself, because it's really special to see. When the, when you see these photos, you'll know what I mean. Anthony Samarco, thank you very much. Thank you for having as me. As always.